Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. All right. Move the Needle episode. Oh, fuck. I don't know what episode it's going to be. <laughs> the co-hosted No Guest Pod. We're going to talk about elastic versus muscular today because this is something that we talk about all the time on the podcast and we decided that it would be fun and beneficial hopefully for us just to talk about the two of us and our experiences i would just like to start this podcast and let all our listeners know how much i care about this brand i'm currently in mykonos and i'm sitting in my hotel room to record this episode so that's how much what this time brand is what time is it in mykonos it is 8 p.m. Oh, wow. You stayed up to 8 p.m. to help us record? Oh, shoot. I could be out in the ocean, in a pool, at a bar, but I'm here recording this podcast. You also missed one of our posts today, but whatever, it's fine. That's fine. Anyways. <laughs> All right, so we want to jump into um, working with muscular, mus- working with elastic athletes. And we'll start broad, which is definitions, describing, identifying. And then we'll talk about certain case studies and the role of certain training modalities within both types of athletes. Um, so I guess the first thing is, how would you define a elastic athlete? How would you define a muscular athlete or just the terminology behind both of those two things, whether it's super simple or maybe more in depth. I think just following the like broad to more concise theme that you just laid out, I'll try to make this initial answer for me as brief as possible. And for me, I think it's as simple as an elastic athlete relies on and uses the elastic structures in their body to a higher degree than a muscular driven athlete who's going to use the contractile tissues. So when you say elastic, in their body, elastic structures, what do you mean? Really from my understanding, how I look at it, I think about the tendons and the fascial system. I don't know as much about the fascial system and how that plays a part, but I believe that it does. And I think that if you talk to other really, really smart people, they would probably say it does. Um, But I would say to keep it simple to me, if you looked at a muscle and tendon in the structure, elastic athletes just use more of that tendon portion to produce movement. Whereas the more muscular based athletes use more of like that muscular contractile tissue to produce movement. The way I think about it is elastic athletes are going to rely more on, and this is kind of a theory I have. I don't know if this is actually accurate, but this is how I envision in my head. An elastic athlete is going to rely on isometric contractions of the musculature. So the tendons can stretch and recoil. Whereas a muscular driven athlete, is not going to rely necessarily as much on that stretch and recoil of the tendons. And they're going to rely on the concentric and eccentric 
muscular actions within the actual mu muscle. So they're going to get the lengthening, the contraction from the muscle, whereas elastic athletes will get it from the stretch and recoil of the tendon. So what if you had two athletes and one of them, let's say your basketball team, and one of them was a really good dunker, great approach jumper, but had a bad vertical jump. And one of them had a great vertical jump, but bad approach dunker, just couldn't really get the ball up too well. Really briefly, how would you describe to them? And they were asking you about it. Like, how would you describe to two athletes who really don't know anything about elastic versus muscular? What makes them different as jumpers or as athletes? It's the elementary version of that. Yeah. So if I'm just talking to two athletes and I've actually had this discussion before recently because I had two different programs, well, a couple of different programs, but two of them were elastic deficient and muscular deficient. And one of the guys that I thought was, or I think is elastic deficient, big, strong, powerful, loves the weight room. He was asking, Hey, why am I on a different program than him talking about the guy that plays the same position as him, but lanky, long, narrow ISA, super elastic. You and your teammate are built differently and use different means to produce movement. So I'm going to train you in a different way than I'm going to train your teammate to enhance the things you're really good at and to bring up the floor of the deficiencies that you have. We're going we're gonna to come back to your elastic deficient versus muscular deficient programs in a little bit. Mm -hmm. in that. I wrote it down. Cool. Let's put a pin in that. Cool. So identify or define, I guess that's kind of your description of it. So if we were going to describe it next, that's kind of how you would describe it to somebody. So I guess the next part would be identifying how you figure mm -hmm. out how someone is elastic or muscular um because yeah. you, because you have access to force plates and i do not mm -hmm. how do you use force mm -hmm. plates to identify if someone is a muscular or elastic athlete ideas isa and elastic versus muscular are on a spectrum so for me I subjectively evaluated the super narrow, super elastic people and the super wide, super, super muscular driven people, gotcha. the people in the middle, the people in the middle kind of get, I don't want to say lost. They don't get lost, but they get assigned to different programs with less. I don't want to say certainty because I, I know how they want to go, but there are certain people on my team that I know with 100% certainty what program they're going into. And there's people in the middle that, might be 50% muscular driven, 50% elastic driven, and right at the cusp of a narrow and wide ISA that get put in the program for different reasons. So do you have a middle, just a middling program? You have your elastic deficient program, you have your muscular deficient program, you have your middling program? I don't because I think that you can, what's, what I think is great about the two programs is they're framed as muscular division and elastic deficient, but you could have a, let's say a narrow who is, no, let's say a wide, let's say we have a wide, but it's a, a young athlete that just needs general development and needs to get stronger and needs to put on some muscle. 
their biggest deficiency is probably that elastic portion of training, but I'm going to put them in the muscular deficient program because that's what they need at this time. So it's not just like, oh, wide you go here, narrows you go here, because there are some wides that need to just develop musculature and train that portion of things. Yeah. And there's some narrows that need the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that we should also come back to, or we could go right into it, knowing when you've graduated out of certain things. Well, Whether you also about the objective evaluation and the force plates what i tried yeah, to answer. yeah let's 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 jump back into that so i'm gonna write that down just so that we that we have it to come back to but knowing can't spell knowing when to graduate someone out of a certain deficiency program or whatnot so um yeah let's let's circle back to to force plates specifically using yeah. a force plate to identify muscular versus elastic i know you just said specifically using the force plates but there's one more subjective tool that i want to Okay. <laughs> that I wanted to point out that I think is relevant and important. So um, I think it's also really interesting now that this, this one is not, I don't think as clear cut as like narrows being elastics wide wides being muscular driven. But I think there's also a very interesting correlation with the inclination of an athlete, their structure and what they'll like to do and put more intent in. So like, for example, yeah, sure. there's a, there's a narrow ISA on my team currently. And if we're out sprinting, like if I get out the timing gates and we're sprinting or pulling sleds or doing jumps, he is all about it. Like competing, wants to do more reps sprinting. We get in the weight room and if he's on the, let's say, muscular deficient program and he has to trap bar deadlift that day, like it is pulling teeth to get him to put some weight on the bar. Now flip that and I have wides that like would go through the motions if I allowed it when we're out sprinting. And then they just want to load the shit out of everything once we get in the weight room. So that's kind of an interesting um, way that you could kind of like begin to decipher the two. But to finally get to the the force well, plate. Well, but, let me let me jump in. So before you jump into the force plate one, because another subjective thing that you can do. And let's talk, I'll ask you this. Have you ever seen someone do something athletic, then assume their, whether their infraternal angle, whether they're more elastic or more force driven, and then been wrong about that just from watching them play sports. Yeah. Really? Okay. Well, maybe you're just a shitty coach. So. I mean, maybe I don't understand the question. Um, because I feel like that, like I, very rarely do I see someone run or jump or just exist in the weight room. And then be wrong about whether they are an elastic driven athlete, whether they are a muscle driven oh, yeah. athlete. The only person I've ever been wrong about was myself, oddly enough. Because I thought for sure I was a wide ISA because my entire athletic sporting career was in a sport that serves wide ISAs really well. And I'm like, and then when I, once I learned about wide ISAs, narrow right ISAs, I'm like, surely that's just what I am. But ever since my body broke and I can't, lift weights and i can only basically run and jump like i'm more athletic ever since i just like i can't squat at all without without pain in my knee so i yep. just basically do some single leg stuff and then i run and jump and and then when i was in nashville tested tested me for uh my isa 
And I was not extreme on either end, but I was more narrow. And then when I go through the actual measurables, like my EUR and whatnot, like my EUR is like a 117, you know, and my RSI is pretty good, but I don't think RSI is actually that indicative of much, but we can get into that later. Uh, I know. It's oh, right. Yeah, I don't, I really don't. But anyway, so that's the only thing I've been wrong about. But I just think in terms of identifying, just watching someone play sport, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll get it right if you kind of understand what you're looking for. Agree or disagree? I agree with you. I appreciate the explanation and I do agree with you. And I think that like, so I was told in the past, I was listening to Rick Franzblau's uh, episode on this whole topic on Just Fly. Really good episode. At the time, it was probably too deep in the weeds for me to really understand. But now I went back and listened to it. And I, I think it's a really good episode. And I remember listening to that episode and somebody that I worked with said, Hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm listening to this episode talking about this. And they said, Oh, that's a waste of time. I'm glad that I didn't accept that. Heed that advice of it being a waste of time and get off that because I think that it's so incredible that I have this new lens to just like somebody walks into the weight room and I immediately get so much information from them just by looking at the structure of and how they're built. Like immediately you see a narrow walk into the weight room. You probably have a good idea of what they're good at. You probably have a good idea of what they don't like to do, what they do like to do. You probably have a good idea of what their deficiencies are and what you need to train and what their superpowers are and what you need to train. Um, I think it's, it's a huge, huge, huge tool to have. Do you actually ever measure eyesight or no? No, I haven't. It's something that, I would really like to be able to do to assess those guys in the middle hmm. or girls in the middle. But um, if, they, if you're not I in the middle, how much would training actually change? If what? If you know they're in the middle, how much would their training actually change? Yeah. Good question. Probably wouldn't. Um, sorry, Leah just texted me. She needs something. Hey, maybe you should ask Leah to record an intro for our show well, that'd be kind of cool get like oh, a feminine yeah. touch on it yeah can elsie be included can she say some shit she can do her outro she can just be crying how's her vocabulary how many words did she have she says dad dad mama okay well, uh now a muscular driven app what oh they have a higher breaking metric said why why would they have a higher breaking metric? I think they'd have a higher breaking metric because what I've come to understand about narrows is that they're more eccentrically inclined. They prefer eccentric muscle actions. There's also probably the better, like in the same way that you'd maybe chalk somebody up, chalk somebody's EUR up to being like better utilization of the stretch shortening cycles better utilization of storing energy within elastic structures. So that would enhance breaking performance. But also like, I think, I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but I think there might be a pretty good correlation between lower time to take off, lower counter movement depth and higher breaking metrics. I think that those might just go hand in hand. Um, and then for a, a muscular driven athlete, I would say that they would probably 
I wrote, I wrote the list, but I haven't actually like dug, dug through any of our data yet. Also, the guys don't really like have very good intent on the plates right now. It's, it's like, just pick your extreme wide, extreme wide, extreme narrow examples. Where do you All think right. it's wide or narrow? What? Reading test is wide or narrow. She might be an extreme wide. Um, really? I'm I'm interested to know what it like if the same things correlate with females. Inch. She fucking hates squatting. Loves. Yeah. She hates squatting. Dude, it has to do with it has to do with the nutation of their uh wides and narrows pelvises. She also does have very long femurs. Oh yeah. Oh. All uh -huh. right, so Super narrows counter movement depth, uh, twenty one centimeters. Super wide counter movement depth, thirty two centimeters. Holy moly! What did I say? What were the two numbers? Twenty one, thirty two. Twenty one, thirty two. Yeah. Yeah, but then there's another. Super narrow, but he's also like very low training age with a counter movement depth of 32. Hmm. Our N equals one study might not be super legit. <laughs> we figured it out. No, I just I think that there's variables involved. A lot of it. Well, here, this is a good uh that is a good example though, if we're trying to get a little confirmation bias. So, yeah, breaking RFD of the super narrow at 21 centimeters is 15,000 newtons per second okay and the super wide is 8,000 newtons per second interesting interesting i like it um yeah i love these two guys whoever they are this is great uh i can't say names but they are they're good and they fit the mold and they they have really good intent on the plates. All right. So I like it. I do. So as a recap, it was counter movement depth, time to take off. Yep. Breaking force. Breaking. Breaking force. Breaking RFD. Breaking RFD. And potentially, relatively, height of counter movement, height of jump. Yeah, probably. I don't know. That's that's probably. I just maybe maybe this is what I'm going to say. Not height of counter movement, but some type of ratio between approach and counter movement. Yeah, I like that. I, I like think, that. I think that the narrows are going to be, however you set up the ratio, are going to be better with a approach vertical, and the wides are going to be better with a counter movement. Obviously, it's not like their counter movement is going to be higher than their approach, but just like the ratio of the two. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, so if that's identification with force plates, I don't have force plates, but what I do have is a jump mat. So I'll talk about some of the ways that we do it with a jump mat, and I'll talk about what I like and don't like. Do you do you ever do uh, DSI? Uh, so this is my thoughts on DSI. Uh, I don't like IMTPs. Why not? I just... I've seen numbers from IMTPs and I've seen literally a second later 
the same person. And even like later in time, so it's not even like you could argue like potentiation. The same person puts on a belt and gets 2,000 more newtons. Mm, they put on a shoulder harness and they get 2,500 more newtons. DSI but, has been on a mid-thipole? Yeah, it's IMTP and counter move jump. You can't just do fucking... Well, I guess obviously it's sh shit changes, but you couldn't do a belt pull. Well, this is this is something interesting that we can leave in the episode. But I think that so so that's the reason I don't like the traditional DSI. I don't really like IMTPs because it's supposed to be like max force production, but it's not mass for force production. If you can just change the environment and get two thousand more newtons, are you gripped but up? Are you, I ask so. Up? Yeah, straps. Yeah. Um, but I was talking to Paul Comfort at the high performance symposium about this, and he had a very, very interesting thought. And he was saying, yeah, if you look at the current, um, standard, what are they called? Standards for DSI. Yeah. Um, if you try to compare a belt squat with a counter movement jump, the whole ratio is going to be so out of whack because belt squats are always going to be so much higher. But one thing that he suggested looking into was a belt squat and a counter movement rebound jump, because there's really, there's a lot of, there's a lot higher forces in the counter movement rebound versus just a counter rebound? movement. So it's something that at Hawkins, they, they talk about using for like their, a fast stretch shortening cycle test where it's a counter movement jump. And then right when you land, it's like a pogo. Got you. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the test. Yeah. It would be like ground contact time, peak forces in the rebound. And he just, he says that, or he was saying that it would be a, it'd be interesting to look at a belt squat and a counter movement rebound because the peak forces in the counter movement rebound are higher than in just in a counter movement and the forces in a belt squat are higher than an IMTP. So that might be a different DSI you could do if you wanted to include a belt squat instead. All that to say, I don't like counter movement rebounds, which I know is a lot of people do, but I just, I don't like them. So that. You don't like them for me. Either. Uh, so I was actually uh, like the, um, they called me up to do the test. So I did an IMTP. I did a counter movement jump oh, yeah. and I did a counter movement yeah. And my first counter movement rebound, I'd never done one before. Like I've done jumps and stuff, but like I've never done an actual counter movement rebound jump before. So I do my first jump and I go all out on my vertical, just like <laughs> as high as I can possibly jump. And then I get off the ground. They like have ground contact time on the screen, like in front of everybody. Oh, and they're no, like, yeah. you have to be under... They have to be under like you have to be under like fifteen hundred mill or five hundred and fifty milliseconds, and I was at like three hundred and fifty, and everybody was like, "Oh my gosh!" So then they let me go again, and this time I did like probably a sixty percent effort counter movement jump, and was able to get my ground contact time under like like freaking a hundred, and everybody was like, "Oh crap!" But you were under point one. And the, no, you weren't. I don't know. It was just it was just drastically improved. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, but then I went to them and I was like, "So, do you have a cutoff that the person has to get in that counter movement jump for it to be like 
a reliable and they're like yeah we want them to get close if they don't get close just have them do it again I just like I don't know relying on my athletes to conduct the test correctly on the first portion to get accurate information from the second portion just seems kind of like a headache to me yeah Um, I mean I think it's similar to like an RS like a like a four jump RSI test because a four jump RSI test is a part of our initial evaluation and the only reason is is because it's just helpful to get them to do it like the first day they're in here because it's it's not indicative of anything because it's a learned test because they do the same shit right it's hands on hips four jumps as fast off the ground as you can as high as you can and it's never good because you know they spend way too much time on the ground they don't jump at all or they out jump their ability to be quick off the ground so it's just it's a learned test and after you know with time they get better at it but that could be the same thing with with this for you guys just do it maybe your first two weeks of doing it you just throw away forever you know and then potentially by that point it's reliable yeah i mean there's there's a setting on our plates that's just multi multi or uh multi rebound and i literally just do a four jump test with that setting so and then you can choose like best three jumps from those it ends up being five because I, what I do is one to get you get yourself going and then four jumps after that. So then I just have a setting in there that it's the best three of those five. So I get rid of the first one because it's a shitty jump because they just do like a little hop into it. And then I get rid of the worst of the four, four jumps. And then I just look at the three left. Was that you said, was that you saying the four jump test on the jump mat? Was that you, how you evaluate things? Cause you said you were going to say how you evaluate things with a, uh, it's part of it. A, it's uh, part of it. Uh, again, it's a learned test. So it's, it takes a little time, but definitely it's part of it. And I'll talk about why I don't love the four jump test, the RSI test. Uh, but I think the one that I like the most with a, with a jump mat is the EUR, the eccentric utilization ratio just because I've never done it and then it not lined up with what I just see visually from the athlete. So eccentric utilization ratio, just a counter movement jump hands on hips versus a uh, non counter movement jump hands on hips. If the ratio is over 1.1, then you are a pretty bouncy jumper. You are able to utilize your stretch shortening cycle. Well, if you're under 1.1, you don't utilize it super well. And I've never had an athlete who I was like, this person is a muscular jumper. And then they hit well under or under 1.1. This person's a bouncy jumper, whatever, and they hit over. So I like that one the most. I don't love RSI. I think it's helpful for sure. And typically, if you are elastic, you're going to have a pretty solid RSI. But I think you can be a muscularly driven athlete and still have a good RSI. Because A, you can just like train the test. And then B... Just because you have stiff ankles doesn't make you an elastically driven athlete. And basically an RSI is an ankle stiffness test. So like I like I can train myself, or I, I've seen athletes who have really stiff ankles. Like we had a we had a um, professional soccer player who played four years at Purdue and she is playing internationally now. And definitely not elastic. Like just melts into the ground in most cases. But she had some ankle problems and her ankle mobility just like started to disappear and her ankles became just super, super stiff. And she had one of the best RSIs in our entire facility. 
but it wasn't because she was elastic. It was because her ankles were super, super stiff. And I've seen that. But like, how do you, but like, how do you know that it's not, that she wasn't elastic and it was just her stiff ankles? Because everything else, like I said, like her EUR was not over 1.1. I think she was like 1.03 or something like that. 103, 102, something like that. And so we knew that she wasn't, that was an indication that she wasn't. And also just from watching her play sport, like we kind of talked about, like nothing that she would do was like, oh, that person's a bouncy elastic athlete. She liked being on the ground. She was very strong, but her ankles are fucked. And they were just super stiff. So when she did the RSI, she just happened to do really well. Could you argue that like the EUR test is not a good representation of who's elastic and muscular because if you're just assessing the utilization of the stretch shortening cycle the stretch shortening cycle cycle happens within the muscle uh yes i would agree with that if not for the fact that it always is in correspondence with everything else you know what i'm saying from your testing data. from my from my just having seen it you know and and i we probably tested now eurs of i don't know Hundred, hundreds of athletes and it's maybe it's not always but it's it's i don't i can't think of an example of when it is not also corresponding to what you see within athleticism so maybe you're right maybe it's not a great because you have to make that caveat because i think you're right but i think it's reliable maybe not super valid but definitely reliable yeah i have a couple of thoughts one i think i love rsi I think that it could potentially be selling it short to say it's just an ankle stiffness test. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that it's, it's never going to be one test. It's like a testing battery that paints yeah. the picture. And that could be like a portion of the test. My question for you is how often are you testing EURs within the training process to see how it's changing, whether you're trying to change it one way or the other. And the reason I ask this is because, and I know that we talked about this before, before I left my previous job, I had two guys that I was training and I, I was in a phase with them where I felt like they were both muscularly deficient. So I used that test as a way to see if I was training the right, um, the right things. And I was trying to decrease their UR. I was trying to get them. Like I had one super narrow that I was trying to get from a one, one seven to like, let's see if we can get them under a one, one just for this for this training block. And then I had a, another guy who I want to do the same and I tested them weekly and maybe it was the intent within the jumps and they were still doing a lot on the court, but their EUR was all over the place. Like it was like a one, one seven. And then for the super narrow, it was like a one, one seven. And then the next week it was a one Oh nine. And I was like, Oh wow, that's a big drop. And then the next one, it was like a one, one five. And it was the same training block. It's not like I was training, changing stuff around. So how often do you assess it? And then how much, fluctuation do you see in the collection of data or in the numbers so a couple of things that that makes me think of a is this is not what i'm assuming but you are like we've talked about is a potentially hard test to test because the non-counter movement jump can turn into a counter movement jump really easily um so like i trust myself to do a test but if someone just gives me their EUR numbers, I wouldn't trust them because I don't know the person. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's hard to test if you're not strict about it. 
uh, to answer your actual question, not as often as would be ideal, but that's more to do with just the space that I'm in. And I don't have consistent athletes who train, essentially, right? So what I, I do, ideally, you're in a team setting, you have whatever, what would, yeah. how often would you do it? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do it probably every week. I might do it every couple of weeks, you know, just to see where the trends are going. The only group that we did it consistently with was uh, like the 10 weeks that we had with our NFL guy, like our uh, combine guys, pro day guys. Um, and theirs would fluctuate, but theirs typically didn't fluctuate over that kind of threshold of 1.1, one way or the other too, too much. Now, if we had like one of our linemen was like a nine seven or something like that, nine eight, point nine eight, and so like we wanted to get him up a little bit, and we got him to like a I don't know like one hundred two, one hundred three or something like that, but it wasn't like a huge fluctuation in either in either direction. Um, so I'm surprised that that's the case, unless you just uh, get the mana test. Yeah, I mean it could be that, and NBA players don't always show the most intent in situations like that yeah um not just these are two great guys so like i'm not going to say yeah. that it was their intent behind the test but the intent behind the test of that you do does change it we can get off this eur topic in a second but one thing that i would like to say and i know that you haven't had a lot of experience with plates in the past but what's great about force plates and doing an eur test is when you you know so for example you do a test on the plates is you save it and you immediately see the force time curve and you can see if the athlete had any unweighting phase yeah. after the initial hold. And if they did, then scratch that test. And that's what I did with the two guys. Like there's a couple where you saw a little bit of an unweighting phase and it's like, okay, well, they re-dipped after the initial pause, uh, scratch that test. So it should now, just were be you, a flat were you, line. Were into you watching it. the tests um, while you were implementing the force plates? And did you think to yourself, oh, that was one he unweighted? Or was it like not even enough to see where you were like, oh, I'm not sure. Let me go back and look. From what I remember, and I think that's a good question for the people that don't have the plates. From what I remember, if you're really, really watching for it, I think you can pick up small counter movements. Like you can tell when a person just goes yeah. straight and up versus and a we tiny. film almost all of our EURs just in case shit, shit. Like you, you see, you think you see something, and then you have to go back and look. So I just wonder if it's like not even that visible if you still see it on the force plate. Yeah. Uh, what time do you have to go? I have a planet two. About twenty-four so, minutes. No, in an hour and twenty-four minutes. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, we're going deep on this thing, dude. And I think to answer your previous question, not to answer your previous question, but your previous statement, I don't necessarily view RSI as an ankle stiffness test, as just an ankle stiffness test, but I think it can be that. And so therefore I'll like occasionally say just to get the point across, so to speak. But I know that it has benefit, but like in an extreme case like that, like with that soccer player, I think it can be just like an ankle stiffness test. And then not to say that I have also seen that with other athletes before. So it's like, not just that one person, but we can move on from this. Yeah, no. yeah. we can move on to this. Okay. Next part. The actual let's, let's, let's jump into some actionable shit. Okay. How do you know when you need to chart training an elastic athlete for elasticity and elastic athlete for more force production? 
and then let's jump into and then vice versa and then let's jump into the actual how you would go about doing so man my brain just explodes with so many things i want to say on this topic because honestly it's something that i'm like i don't know if i want to say i'm passionate about it or it's a pet peeve of mine right. you can say passionate dude um but like i think it's funny when strength coaches have a and i think this happens i've heard it happening in football Wait, um i'm gonna also ask it in this podcast the final question that we always ask our guests well, so, uh, so if, if this is if this is the preemptive answer then go ahead roll with it i mean i'm gonna say it and i'll, I'll circle back to it maybe but I think it happens in football a lot. And I hate when, like early on in my career, before I looked at athletes through this lens, one of the lenses I looked at athletes through, I would hear strength coaches in football talk about their position groups, like their receivers and their DBs and how shitty they were in the weight room and how they didn't want to lift heavy and they'd call them soft and whatever. They're not whatever. And me when i was a young intern i'd be like yeah, yeah those dudes are soft they don't want to squat heavy like everybody wants to squat heavy and now i've come to realize that like those same dbs were the ones that were the most competitive out in speed work and they were going so hard in plyos and and all this stuff and their structure just didn't allow them to be good at or really enjoy the process of training heavy um i i, I will say it so you know, I remember when we were at davis and i had the skill guys and i remember when we were doing a lot of our super heavy strength stuff you know we were doing like some of our max stuff it was like right around when we were doing those max squats and then our hand clean night and in conjunction with a lot of like the high speed stuff that we we're doing on the field and I remember a lot of the DB guys just like doing well in the field and then going into the weight room. And by going into the weight room at that point in time, I mean, going under the tent that we were using and just like, oh, but- you're like, dude, fuck us. Like the last thing I want to do right now is put 400 pounds on my back. Like, fuck me, you know, which was completely contradictory to the first hour of training. And then I was like, well, fucking it's on the sheet, baby. So it's a ride. <laughs> yeah, no, I think. Yeah, it's again, it's it's uh, I don't know, it's a frustration of mine, but it, because I have my own team now and I don't work with other teams and and run other people's programs, I don't really have to deal with it. But all that to be said, to now flip to the other end of the spectrum, I think that there is value in training a narrow with heavy if you choose to do heavy back squats if you choose to do heavy trap or deadlift or front like there is a time for that i'm not saying that you never do that with those types of athletes because they don't like it i'm just saying when you do it and the dose of what you do it i think needs to be precise and for me i think that you look at a narrow and you do those dare i say kryptonite um type training that kryptonite type training further away from the end season and when you say and then as you get close when you say kryptonite training you mean that heavier force production type training yeah just like compressive heavy bilateral internal rotation dominant traditional weight training 
Now, that's not to say you don't, because I think you need to dose narrows with things that wides are good at. You need to dose wides with things that narrows are good at. But I think that if you just back squat the shit out of a narrow for an eight week, 12 week, 16 week off season, and you max test the week before they go to camp or the week before they start practice, you're going to have stripped that narrow of a lot of superpowers that they rely on to be really, really good. Now they're still going to be playing their sport. They're still going to be doing hopefully speed work and plyometrics. So it's not like you're just training them like a power lifter. But I think that if we just looked at the extreme example of just training a narrow, like a power lifter by the end of that phase, yeah, I'm sure their back squat's going to go up 150, 200, whatever pounds. But then when they go to do the things that they need to do in their sport, they're going to be a lot worse at it. Um, so I think you still dose it because I still think all athletes need everything. It's just the dose at which you give them. Um, it's just when you dose it. And for me, oh. I dose narrows with heavy compressive work early off season and then get away from it. And I flip that for wides. Um, and I think the follow up, the, the easy follow up question to that is you might have a set timeline within your programming to switch from one style. You know, I was like, Hey, we have a four week elastic deficient program. Once we're done, we're moving on. Is that the case? Or is it, Hey, we're going to go until I see this, then we'll switch. Or is it a combination of two? How do you make that decision within the still schedule and the structure of let's just say a college basketball season, because that's what you're in right now. Yeah. So in, in the past I've had typically like, let's say eight weeks and I have four and four. It's easy. Everybody can be on the same schedule. I can flip at the same time. I have one, I'm one coach trying to manage 15 guys. I think in a perfect world, you change the transition period based on the training age of the athlete. And you might leave a narrow with a very low training age that you know, isn't going to play a lot in a muscular deficient program for maybe all eight weeks. Cause I don't really care if they get a little bit worse at certain KPIs, cause they're not going to be on the court playing, but they need to be dosed with some of this stuff now. And it's a time in their lives in their four or five years in school that I can dose a lot because they're not going to be playing now flip that. And if I have a narrow that I know is going to be, this is his fifth year. He's going to be our starting, whatever. He's going to play 40 minutes a game and needs to be at his best. And he has a big training history with me. Well, maybe I just touch like two weeks of more compressive exercises and move on to his superpowers and ramp those up for six weeks before the season starts. So he's at his best whenever we get going. So the art of coaching is important. You can't just decide necessarily, unless you're just like, here's my program. Here's my next program. I'm one person where it's going to make it happen. Yeah. For simplicity's sake, I still don't think that's a bad way to do it. And to be honest with you, that's like, that might be how I do it going into this year. I think it's just a developmental process. And I, I don't think that doing it one way or the other is going to be like drastically better, but like next year I might tailor it to the person a little bit more and it might get my program 2% better. And that's like all I'm after. So or maybe I'll do it this year. But. So this is a question that's unrelated to what we thought we'd talk about, but if you were to just give us a quick snapshot of your annual plan, let's think about some periodization model, like, like block periodization. 
And it's like, hey, I'm gonna be in a four-week basic strength. I'm gonna be in a four-week absolute strength. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do my whatever. I'm gonna reaccumulate my strength endurance phase. How do you set your structure? Is it like, hey, we're gonna be in a four-week muscular versus elastic phase? And then we're gonna flip after four weeks. And then my next phase is a super elastic, super muscular. Like, what are your phases look like? Uh, so very simple snapshot of my year and how I kind of look at things. Uh, what I consider postseason, so not like NCAA tournament postseason, but like you get done with your season postseason is just a like as GPP is GPP gets like we're probably not even going to be lifting a lot. I think a lot of people think GPP and it's just like high volume basic movements. But for me, it's like very human centric training of like crawling and, and doing things that just get them away from things they've been doing all year like play different sports and and whatever crawl crouch and climb and play volleyball and play whatever um and then i move into probably a little bit more traditional gpp model where i just the the idea of that is now just getting a little bit more specific so super gpp to like more traditional GPP and my theme for that phase is like strength at length where I'm going to train like through very deep ranges of motion um, with probably more traditional movements, but like training the musculature and the, and every joint through like a full range of motion. Um, and then I go into the deficiency program, elastic deficient, muscular deficient. That takes me to like that chunk, big portion of the off season go through that for however long and then switch where my narrows are now on like an elastic superpower program. My wides are on a wide superpower program um, or like a elastic superpower, muscular superpower. But I still think that I need to dose wides and muscular different athletes with elastic movements because that's in my opinion, what, what sports are most sports, especially basketball. So they're not just going to be doing heavy compressive exercises um and then once we get in the end season more programs start with red shirts and no minute low minute high minute um and how i dose those things throughout the week and so if your if your head coach came to you with that model and said hey show me that our team got better with you or else you're fired what are you pointing to because it doesn't seem like you're pointing to my trap bar max is improving my, you know, like, what are you pointing to is this, these are, these are super important metrics. These are why they're important. And this is how we can better. Because you said a lot of it was subjective on the front end, right? Yeah. The evaluation process, the evaluation process is, I would say there's, there's more, more elements of, there's more subjective elements, but I think that you can have specific KPIs that will be enhanced for both parties on either program. So you can look at an approach vertical, a uh, flying 10, a RSI, a strength measure. I'll, I'll still look at like a, a trap bar deadlift, predicted one rep max, um, an IMTP. Um, so you can still have specific KPIs that you're looking to like develop and increase. And hopefully, the two programs, the summation of them, regardless of which one you're on, just like end up with your most relevant KPIs being as heightened as possible. I got you. I got you. 
But if you have everybody on like, if you have everybody on a muscular deficient esque program where they're just like powerlifting, your wides are probably going to get a lot better and your narrows are probably going to get a lot worse. And in the same regard, if you just give people springy plyos and like skater squats and you don't let yeah. wides feel compressed and, and internal rotation, they're probably not going to get better either. So it's dosing both. So hopefully at the end of the day, all your important KPIs are heightened. I think the the annoying part about the private side is the lack of that is a lack of having to write a plan that does that because the people you train are all over the place. Um, but then we you do get specific situations in which you can do that, like our college group this summer, right? We have a, a pretty consistent three-month group that trains in the summer before they leave for their schools. And although most of what we do is more elastically driven just in nature because most of what we do is speed and agility and jumping anyway, right? So it's almost, it's, it's mostly elastically driven anyway. The the thing that we, that we wanted to do this year with our college group was um, just depending on where they fell in their muscular versus elastic, we just dosed our, our kind of lift that way. So the run was very similar to what we were thinking anyway. It's just a fairly well-rounded speed program. And then like the start of our lifts was going to be as sprint heavy as we could make it. So like, instead of doing like a three by three clean, we were going to do like a 50% or 60% VDEX sprint. And then for our, our people who were elastic, our volume there was going to be a little bit higher. And then our, for our people who are more muscular driven, our volume there was going to be a little bit lower, but then we just leaned into some of their more compressive stuff. So once they went into some other compressive stuff, our volume just increased there. Um, but I really liked doing that this year with with that group. And, and now we're, we're almost done with that with that um, group. And a lot of them are doing super well athletically right now. Um, and I think if I ever am back into the college realm, then that's how I'm going to do just training in general. Like, I'm, like, I don't know if I could go back to just, hey, we're in a fucking strength endurance phase of fucking bullshit dude and that's also kind of what we did with our our combine group this year and i know i've i've told you about this one kid that we had who was super bouncy it ended up working out because he ran a 439 at his pro day but he was super bouncy he's defensive back and like this is the most turnover runner you've ever seen like really really fast but he would take six steps at five yards it's like super turnovery, just zero push at all, and just like didn't want to push. So we put him on some like super heavy and force him to push, bring him out of it, have him run, and he just like he just hated the feeling of trying to push. And so after like three weeks, we were like, dude, like we're now, you know, four weeks away from your your pro day. We've been like crushing you with this more push dominant stuff, just because you're too turnovery, you're too elastic. And you need to get some of this into you. We've made incremental progress in three weeks. And then we just kind of said, fuck it. And then we're just like, let's just pull you on overspeed as often as we can. And then we'll let you rip. And then he ran a 4.39. And so it was just completely saying fuck it to what he was bad at. And just leaning into what he was good at. And it worked out well. He was super happy with it. We were super happy with it. Unfortunately, he's not playing football anymore. But... Not because he's not fast as fuck, 
<laughs> TC Boost still made him fast. So two two thoughts I've had off that. One is more maybe just a comment of you still hit him with the heavy stuff for three weeks. So it's not like you did it one session and said, oh, I hated it. So like, I think there was probably still value in doing that, even though he didn't. I think there like was. It. I definitely think so. And I think that that's like the basis of my model and how I think like you still give athletes what they don't like and they're not good at because there's certain qualities that they're going to need to rely on at certain times. So like he probably still utilizes, utilize some of the things he developed during that time. Um, and then transition to things that he's good at. But um, my other thought, what was my thought? I should have freaking wrote it down. Amateur. I oh, will say. Oh, oh, oh. Back to your comment about the the group that you had for an ex extended period of time. So if I understand what you said correctly, you had a group. They all did very similar, just well-rounded speed work. Then when you got to like the quote unquote weight room section of things, you kept the, let's say, narrow elastics and didn't do as much of the first block strength exercise. And you did more on the 1080 heavy resisted sprints and you did less with the wides on the 1080 and more of the heavy compressive exercise yeah so like when i first got back it was kind of just like a reintroduction to training so we did like just very general speed agility and lift so like a very typical program that you might see in any college weight room and i was just like two weeks just to introduce some training and after that it was like hey you know we're gonna still crush the speed and agility stuff whether you're a wide, you're a narrow, you're a muscular, you're elastic, you're all going to benefit from this stuff. Like we know it works. Um, and then when we get to your lift part, like they might all start with some kind of explosive exercise. Let's just say on Monday, it was, we're going to do for our explosive exercise, it's going to be our 50% decrement runs or 60% decrement runs. Well, if, if you're one of the more elastic athletes, you might do four reps at 15 or 20 yards. And if you're uh, not, you're still going to hit it. We're going to let you hit it. You might do one or two reps less, a little bit shorter, but then when we get into some more of the compressive stuff, we're going to let you kind of rip a little bit more than the, than the narrow guys. And they might do some less compressive, maybe still compressive, but we pull them back a little bit. So for our speed and agility stuff, it was all very, very similar just because of the confidence that we have in that. But then when we got to the lift, it was like, Hey, we're just going to try to initially work on the things that we suck at so we are going to do some of that some of the things that you're not very good at but as we get closer to the end of the summer like we're definitely going to lean into the volume being geared toward who you are as an athlete so if you're a muscular athlete we're going to let you be a muscular athlete and if you're a narrow athlete we're going to let you be a narrow athlete and we're not going to try to force you too too much into either realm because especially for those narrow narrows like once they get back to school most of them are going to get put into a more force driven program anyway so for them we really wanted to push them into some of that stuff and so like we have we have one girl who plays lacrosse at a pac-12 school and when she was a senior in high school she ran a 109 flying 10 and last week she ran a 128 and oh my gosh yeah and she's gonna go into hey, that's, a, that's a perfect example of surfing superpowers and she is a super turnover runner, really bad at pushing. Um, and, <laughs> and when she's in the weight room, like 
And when, when we're talking to her about what she does, she's like, yeah, like we, we RDL on one day, we trap bar on the next day and then we squat on the next day. I'm like, what are you like your explosive exercises? Like, what do you do? That's not slow. And she's like, well, we condition. I go, okay, mm. well, that's good stuff. So, so that's an example of what they're going to go back into. Now that, I think that's extreme. Not all programs are that bad, but especially with her, it was like, Hey, we're just going to give you as much elastic stuff as humanly possible. Because when you go back, you're going to get just crushed with this four stuff. So let's try to get you in, a, in an okay place. And then hopefully the decrement of that is just going to be a little bit slower. Yep. Um, I really like the, the, the concept and the, that model. My question for you is, do you think that if you have the resources and the time and, and the coaching availability and the ability to do it, that it would be worth it to begin individualizing your speed work? Or is that getting too into the weeds with this concept and you just, whatever you want to do, short to long, heavy to light, like you just follow a general model for everybody and allow and and, and trust that that training speed probably doesn't need to be. Yeah, I think it's a good question and it's a good distinction to make. So when I say that everybody's on the same program, everybody's on the same skeleton of a program, but we might get to certain places in different ways, you know? So like early on in a, in a phase, if you're an athlete who's like super turnover and we have, and we're in an acceleration block, I might pull you out and have you do some kind of bounding variation just to get you to feel a little bit more push. And if you're a super pushy athlete, I might pull you out and have you do some kind of like a run, some type of frequency correction, and then put you back in. So the actual skeleton is the same, but I have the bandwidth, especially with our group sizes aren't that big. So I have the bandwidth to pull things out of people individually, give them the corrective for whatever that might be, and then put them back into the group and let them be a part of the group. So yes, it's the same general program, but we'll pull correctives that'll help that athlete. And then if it's like, hey, six of these people out of this, or 10 of these people out of this 11 person group or whatever it might be, are struggling to push, maybe we'll have them all do some kind of bounding variation and that and that last person will just get some good reps anyway. You know what I mean? So it's the same program, but it's just coached more individually. Um, whereas the actual weight room is specifically programmed more individually. So now a hypothetical for you, you're in, you're back in the collegiate setting and you have a soccer team of 30 girls and they all lift at the same time. You don't get to do whatever, six groups of five. You just have 30 girls. You're with them for like, you've been with them for a while. You really understand the team. You have their training down. This is your third or fourth year with the team. Do you begin to try to individualize your speed work based on some of the things we're talking Or are you always just going to rely on in a team setting when the resources aren't necessarily there, just a good holistic speed training model, and then try to individualize stuff in the weight room where I think it's a little bit easier to do so? Within the context of what you just asked, if I have had a team for an extended period of time, and this is year three, then I'd probably just bucket them speed wise i'd profile them i'd bucket them and then although they might not get specific rep to rep corrections 
they're still going to get put into the things that I deem most important for those athletes. You know, so if I have 30 girls and I have, you know, four buckets, you know, and there's 10 girls per bucket and then just kind of fill the rest in wherever they might fill. There's seven girls per bucket and the last two girls are wherever, you know, right. I think the same thing, seven times four, 28, you know, and then you have two girls left over. You just put them wherever the fuck you want. Not- I think it's really easy to create a program of speed development. And if I am bucketed, I can just say, Hey, this group. And we talked about this on, on Mason's podcast a little bit, you know, it's like, let's say you have 10 reps of speed development today, right? Depending on where, my, where I am in my bucket, let's say I'm on my acceleration deficient bucket. The workout is very, very similar. But if I'm in my acceleration deficient bucket, instead of hitting five reps of acceleration and five reps of top speed today, I'm going to hit seven reps of my acceleration, three reps of my top speed, right? So the workout doesn't change a whole lot, but the stimulus to that athlete because of the bucket that they're in is significantly different than, let's say, if I'm on my top speed deficient bucket and I'm going to hit my seven reps of top speed and three reps of acceleration. Yeah, I got you. Give me two seconds. All right. I think that's a, a good answer. Uh, my next question for you is you said bucket them based off deficiencies, let's say ex- whatever, early acceleration efficient, max velocity efficient to get back to our elastic versus muscular theme of this podcast. Would you consider like maybe even day, whatever, not maybe not day one, but just as a, as a, figure whatever figure of speech um early on begin to bucket based on elastic versus muscular because you're able to know if somebody's super narrow or super wide the minute they walk into a room would you ever think about like i don't know dosing muscular driven athletes with more early acceleration and elastic division or uh, elastic athletes with max velocity i don't know like that's my where my head initially goes to with that question but what do you think yeah, I mean, I think it's similar to how you talked about when you have certain guys who will go out to the field and they'll run with great intent, come into the weight room, and they'll hate their life. I think similar to certain things within speed development, when we do a super heavy resisted acceleration, there are some athletes that hate that. They're like, this is the worst thing ever because you're moving really slow. You're spending a lot of time on the ground. You're pushing hard. There are some athletes that are like, yeah, this fires me up. Cause it's the closest they're going to get to squatting on the field. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They love that shit. Right. So I think it's, it's just kind of playing to that a little bit. And then same thing with like some of our max velocity days, like there are some athletes and typically the bigger athletes, you know, who don't enjoy max velocity, you know, and then some of the more springy dudes who just like, anytime you turn the lasers on and you let them start all the way back on the track, they're like, they could do that. They could do that for 60 minutes and they'd be totally happy if, as long as they stayed healthy, you know, so I think that similar to how we kind of talked about the subjective um, use of if someone's elastic, if someone's muscular, like you see that very quickly within a runner as well. Like if someone is a pushy runner, they're probably a force driven athlete. If someone's a turnover runner, they're probably a last driven athlete. So you know that pretty well and pretty quickly. So I think you can definitely bucket athletes into categories like that. And then you kind of know what they'll really like and what they'll respond well to within sprint development. But at the end of the day, like sprinting fast is your stride length and your stride frequency and muscular athletes are stride length and elastic athletes are stride frequency. So you still have to marry the two anyway, 
So if I'm an elastic athlete, I still do just like that kid we talked about, not kid, he was a grown adult who ran a four, three, nine, 40. Like he still had to learn how to push and we still made him push. Was it the thing that he wanted to do? He liked to do and was like exactly what he needed. Maybe not completely, but we knew that he couldn't just rely on stride frequency in order to make him a fast runner because he was completely giving up stride length. So they're both equally important within that equation of speed development. And it's just, we know that some athletes are going to be better at one thing, like that one thing more. And we just got to occasionally give them the other thing just to make sure that their body remembers how to do that a little bit. And then kind of integrate what they're good at back in. That makes sense. I like it. It's, it's like following the same. It's like following a very similar way that you would approach the weight room. I think very, very similar. And it makes, I think programming in the weight room really easy too because it just like you said like you do what you do in the field you do how you do in the field and then you just follow that exact same template as soon as you get into the weight room so they, they both relate to each other really really well what would you say to this is like a selfish question that i'm wanting to ask just because we're on the topic of speed development but what would you say to i'm just going to say somebody that says don't need to train a basketball player's max velocity because of it being a acceleration-based sport and they'll never touch max velocity yeah um, like, I mean, let's say no let's say this. a coach like a sport coach walks up to you and is like hey why do you have my players running flying tens with a 20-yard build like we never will run that fast in a game so i think the the go-to answer on that is something that most coaches have heard and know of and it's just the the tony holler saying of you know, max velocity is a tie that raises all ships. Your max velocity work is going to make you a better accelerator. Accelerating will not make you a better max velocity athlete. Max velocity is the most central nervous system stimulating thing that you're going to do in training. Accelerating is probably second. Jumping is probably third. So if I'm an athlete who doesn't touch max velocity in my sport, I'm still going to train a stimulus, a stimulus, a stimulus, that is of greater demand than when I'm going to meet my sport so that I'm more prepared for my sport. You know what I'm saying? And that's the same thing with, I like it. and and we, and we talk to, we talk to football coaches all the time, or football, like S and C coaches all the time. And one of the most common questions that comes up are how far should we take our alignment? Like how far out should we take our alignment? Like what is really appropriate? And I think, I think offenses now are getting more comfortable really letting linemen get out into the field and push the pace a little bit. But at least with the linemen that we train, like they're still going to do max velocity work at least once a week. Now they're not going to necessarily do a flying 10, but they're going like, we have some very good looking guys who are 320 pounds. Well, that's, I came out weird. We have some guys who are 320 pounds who have very good looking dribbles, you know, <laughs> the more attractive the, than a the, the inverse is true too they are they are also handsome men but <laughs> but like there's definitely a benefit to it because they accelerate and we know that max velocity is beneficial to that and if you can do it safely and you can do max velocity safely with a big human being you know then it's going to help them accelerate so why not do it if you don't trust them to do it safely then yeah don't do it because you definitely have linemen who don't know how to run well, who if they send it, they will get hurt. But if you can train linemen to run well, then yes, what's, there's no issue with them running fast. 
So yeah, my I I like that answer. I completely agree with you. And my I wrestled with this at, at Davis because that was when I went under my biggest. I was the original speed guy, and then you went to TC Boost and just blew me out of the water because I felt like I was like really in the speed weeds, and then you like went there, and that's all you do. Speed forest. You're in the weeds. I was in the forest. And no, now you're in the forest. No, no. Uh, anyway, but that's the the like conclusion that I came to that I think is the most simple thing to understand is like it is the the highest stimulus that you can give an athlete. So why, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. And if you don't prepare your athletes for higher stimuli than they're going to face in a sport, like, are you doing your job? I mean, I think you could argue, yes, you are. If you're, if you don't, but you could also argue that, you know, you aren't, you know, but at the same time, like you could also argue if you don't do match with athletes like linemen or basketball players, you're not doing anything wrong. You know, like if you said that I don't do match with my basketball players because we don't hit it in games, I wouldn't be like, Oh, like you're fucked up. You know what I mean? Like you could still make the argument and I wouldn't think that you're completely wrong, but personally I would do it. Yeah. I agree with you. All right. I think we're winding down here. So let's not spend too, too much time on this, but this is something yeah, I definitely get to. All right. Something that Elsie brought up was the role of crawling in elasticity. So I just want you to take that where you may. What is the role of crawling? as it pertains to elasticity. Go ahead. Wow, this is this is a curveball because to be honest with you, I, as you know, I'm a big proponent of, let's say human type movement, but- Let's say- It's kind of a curveball. Rolling and crawling. It's a really rolling good question. I'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that my answer to this with not really putting much thought before to it would be that to me, elasticity people think of well i don't know what people think of but i would assume that a lot of people think of like maybe tendons and that structure or being springy being bouncy but i think that there's also a very prevalent element of rhythm and fluidity within being elastic and i think that most things within the weight room don't really involve rhythm in the same way that and fluidity in the same way that some of that human movement does so i think that there could be a way to develop rhythm and fluidity and i think that there's also a way to create unique ranges of motion with that within joints that may be restricted from traditional training. And I think that you need unique ranges of motion um, to be elastic. One tangible example I want to give, and this is something that just popped in my head and shout out Pat Mahomes, my guy and shout out Bobby Stroop, my other guy. Hopefully we can have him on the podcast soon. Which one? Um, uh, both. I'll probably just call Pat up afterwards and see if we can get him on and then I'll, I'll reach out to Bobby after. But uh, so one thing that I really, really like the concept of is like the spine and Mason t- touched on this before and we asked him about like the spinal engine, quote unquote, concept. And I think that when I 
typically think of elasticity, I think of like the lower leg and being springy and being bouncy and, and short ground contact times. But I think there's also a, a element of elasticity within like the spine and the upper body as well. And um, Joel Smith in his latest acceleration course talks about like the 3D perspective of sprinting and where you're like not looking at it from the side, but from the front of the back and you see how much like rotational yeah. elements there are to sprint. Now tie this into the whole Bobby Stroop, Pat Mahomes example of the spine being able to like bend, twist and turn. And to me, like being able to use your spine in crazy ranges of motions, motion and like a whip is very elastic as well. And I think that like rolling and crawling allows your spine to be moved in such different ways to develop elasticity within the upper body that not only contributes to pitchers and quarterbacks, but also to the fluidity and rhythm of movement within sprinting. Um, so what do you think of, let's just take like a bear crawl example and the place the cone or the tennis ball on the low back as rigid as possible bear crawl how does that make you feel at this point in my life this is a concept so i have two like overarching themes to how i think about training um and one is and this is why i proposed the title of this pot this this brand as move the needle but the number one theme is go ahead mike i was just i was saying you're just taking credit for naming the brand just but it's all right. It's all right. Just take it. That's fine. It was teamwork. One of the reason I did. I'm just saying that, like, I proposed this name. We decided on it together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Clarify. Okay. Cool. Uh, but that is my number one, like, theme that I think of everything through. Like, am I am I moving the needle in some way? Or is it this just stagnant and a waste of time? Am I moving the needle? And two is... Now, I originally said yin and yang, but I believe the correct pronunciation is yin and yang. Um, but yin and yang. Yeah, I know. But I've heard a lot of people say yang, so I'm going to say both Ooh. just to cover my bases. But anyway. What? Who? Uh, I was listening to a podcast and somebody <laughs> said yin and yang. And I was like, Am I, have I been saying this wrong this whole time? Anyways, so to get back to your crawling question, I think that there's a time and place for both. And I think that while elasticity, I just said, is fluidity and, and, and rhythm is important, I think there still has to be compression and rigidity within athletes. Like going back to my girl, Elsie, who for all listeners, Elsie is my nine and a half month old daughter. Um, she is a extremely flexible as all babies are. They have no rigidity, and that's why she can't produce any force. But as you know, I, I do love those things as well. And just to uh, drive that point home, the first thing I put on my order list when I got to Arizona State, because we don't have turf in our weight room, is two giant gymnastics mats that I can lay down in the weight room and, and use. I like that. I'm very I like, excited. I like a lot. Um, let us wrap with the final question that we always ask guests that we can throw some answers out, uh, whether it's one or six things, something you do or think the rest of the field would disagree with. Yeah, let's, let's just do one because this isn't going to be our only like 
It's true. Uh, me and you, me and you podcast, so we can't give all answers. We'll give a we'll give a different answer every single time we do one together. All right. Um. So, what is something I do that the majority of the field would disagree with? Uh, I think that. Uh, how do I want to phrase this? We put our we hang our hat way too much on the sport of powerlifting. We're not going to get any disagreements from me, that's for sure. Yeah, I just I just think that it's it's funny that we hang our hat on another sport. Now, I understand that that sport has a lot of beneficial things for athletes. Yeah. But I would argue that like a football player could have a very beneficial adaptations from playing basketball off season, all yeah. off season. So like, what's to say that powerlifting is the sport that we have to use to develop our athletes. I think that if all athletes went into a track and field setting and was with a really good track and field coach, that would be better than powerlifting. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it's a good comparison because I don't think people view it as a sport, but it is. You're just doing a whole different fucking sport, dude. You're just using a sport to train for everybody. That's like when people are like, bases there. when people, um, like in the high school setting, it's very common to hear this team goes and trains at a CrossFit gym as their strength training, resistance training. Everybody's like, dude, that's fucked up, bro. Is it that much different from just being a power lifter in your off season? You know? It's not. I, w- I would like to think that there are very few programs around the country that are literally just training like powerlifters. Like I, I could be naive to think that there are a few programs that are just like back squat Monday, bench press Tuesday, deadlift Friday, and then do whatever accessories powerlifters do. But like, I'm sure there are some out there. And even if like that's 80% of your program, 90% of your program, let's say, I think that's still too much. I'm sh- I think that I feel like it's probably not as bad as you think it is, but it's still too much of the field. I don't know. I would, I'm more optimistic than you are. You know, how much of the field, how much of the field do you think their program is no speed work, no plyos, bench, deadlift, back squat, and then like RDL, dumbbell, bro, friggin' lateral lunge well it's interesting having a mixed college group in a summer here in the private sector because you get kids from all different programs and levels you know and different programs different sports different levels female male and are you good how many breaks are you gonna take just another night veganos dude what is happening right now can we finish our pot oh wow Oh my goodness. Dude, what a life you live now, dude. God almighty, what a fucking life you live. Hey, can we get back to our podcast so I can go eat lunch and then coach? Because like I coach every day. Unlike your vacation looking fucking robe wearing, fucking sunglass wearing, midnight looking ass. You're just wearing a robe in a hotel in Greece right now. You know that? You're just recording a podcast in a robe in a hotel in Greece right now. No, I didn't hear a single word you said that entire time. It was so loud. I can't hear it at all. So, all okay. right. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry about that. I was just 
That was just kind of startling. Uh, Can we finish our pod? No. All right. So the point I was coming back, the point I was coming back to. Are we back? Are we rolling? Yeah, we're rolling. The point I was coming back to was it's just interesting to get people from all different types of programs, sports, schools, and then to hear about their experience within sports performance because they're they're all over the place. And you definitely get some of that. You definitely get, I don't ever do speed work. I lift heavy all the time. And then every once in a while, my, my sport coach will get pissed at us that we're not fast enough. So she'll make us do time 40s. And then we'll never see those times ever. And we won't ever talk about it. And we won't ever do speed work again. But every once in a while, you do hear about good programs as well. So I don't want to be pessimistic to say that it's it's more than the majority. But I would say it's pretty damn close. The, the squat thing, I mean, yeah, I, I can't say it. I was going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that to be that far in the extreme of anything is probably wrong. But what am I? who am I to say that, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, All right, so, Mike, what is something that you hold true that a majority of the field would disagree with? I think that conditioning within most situations is done at too high of an intensity for it to actually be helpful. Too high of an intensity. Interesting. Explain yourself. Because my lens has changed from a more general performance lens to a more now just speed lens. And so when someone tells me that they just went and did some kind of lactic capacity workout or a lactic capacity workout in which they're running at 85% effort just continuously until they feel destroyed is just the way to not get faster where most sports are aerobic and alactic in nature so and then even aerobic work like an aerobic tempo work like an aerobic tempo run i would say oftentimes if you don't have a heart rate monitor you have no idea what you're doing you have no idea if it's actually aerobic or if you're actually crossing the anaerobic threshold and if you're staying aerobic great you can recover from that. But like if you're above the anaerobic threshold and you're and you're at, let's say you're at 80% VLO, well, you're just making yourself slower. You're actively making yourself slower because you're not recovering from it. It's too slow to actually get faster from. You're not setting yourself up later in the week to run well. So I just think conditioning is done poorly. Interesting. Um, this isn't necessarily about the conditioning portion of that answer, but do you think that sub-maximal running can actually make you faster from the lens of like elastic ground contacts? I think there are certain extensive tempo work or even intensive tempo work that can definitely help you. But I think it get it tries to marry itself too much in certain programs. There's like, hey, I'm hitting this, I'm hitting an aerobic workout on month, on Tuesday, whatever it might be, whatever day. And instead of it being like an actual aerobic exercise, athletes are way too competitive. They try too hard. They're too concerned about what their coaches think to be able to do an aerobic workout and actually relax. 
right? And that's what it should be. And I think I think Randy Huntington was talking about this. He was talking about sometimes when he'll have his his sprinters go and do aerobic work, he'll have his strength coaches pace it. Because he's like, I know my strength coaches are slow as fuck. So if they pace it, I know my track athletes won't go too fast or won't go too hard. I know it'll stay aerobic. And like, I think it's a brilliant solution because athletes are too competitive. They try too hard in certain contexts. And then coaches often view effort as success. So if it doesn't look like you're working hard, you're not, according to them. And I think that can ruin certain parts of training. And at the end of the day, what's going to actually move your performance? If I'm way faster than I was beforehand, that's going to move my performance. If I just crush myself with this lactic workout, and then I think that I can go do a speed workout, or if I even hit aerobic workout that's too high intensity, and I think I can go hit a speed workout, like you're not actually doing anything that's going to move the needle. So that's my thing. It's good stuff. All right. Is that it? Are we wrapped? I think we're wrapped. I think it was a I think it was a good sode. Uh, I think it was a good sode. Um next time we record, you'll be back in the United States of America. Thank you guys for listening. Give us a like and a follow at MTN underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And find us individually at Coach Mike Sully and at Hunter EIS underscore SP. See you guys next week.